The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? Every five years, Beijing goes into heightened security as senior members of the Chinese Communist Party gather. The National Party Congress is an occasion for the party to review its track record and determine its future direction. But, most crucially, it's a moment to unveil future leaders. Older members of the seven-member Politburo Standing Committee are retired, while fresh blood is brought in, including at the very top, the General Secretary. Under a norm set down by Deng Xiaoping, this General Secretary is meant to be changed to every other Congress. In other words, every ten years. But at this upcoming Congress, most China watchers expect Xi Jinping to remain in position, beginning his third term in power. And he'll try to pack the standing committee with his own allies. So, to look ahead to this important event in the communist calendar, with me today are two distinguished and clued-in guests. But before I introduce them, I also just want to do a little housekeeping. If you enjoy what we do here at Chinese Whispers, then you might also enjoy an upcoming Chinese Whispers newsletter. It'll be written by me, and it'll be everything you love about the podcast, rounding up the latest cultural and political headlines from China, with, of course, a smattering of history. If you'd like to sign up for for free, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash whispers. Now then, my guests today are Bill Bishop and Professor Victor Shi. Bill runs the Fantastic Cynicism newsletter, a regular roundup of the must-know political and economic news from China, with a close eye on developments within the party. And Victor is an expert in Chinese elite politics. His latest book is Coalitions of the Week, which looks at how Mao Zedong, in many ways Xi's role model, successfully routed his competitors to establish his own one-man rule. Bill and Victor, welcome to Chinese Whispers. Bill, can we start by explaining what the National Party Congress is and what it does? Thank you for having me again. It's a real pleasure to be back on. I love your podcast. So the the, the National Party Congress is the um, most important meeting for the Communist Party. It's now held every five years, and it consists of a group of, I think, around 2,200 delegates. Or was that the number they just came out with? And they set the broad agenda, they, they select the central committee, then the central committee out of that comes the Politburo and, the, and then the standing committee. And then the standing committee and the Politburo sort of run the party on a, on a sort of a more regularized basis. And so you have the, the party congress will meet, sort of they'll have a, the, this will be the 20th party congress. Um, and then sort of every year for the next five years, you'll have one, one plenum or so, which is, but, but this is really the, this is the big show for the Chinese Communist Party where inside the party, basically nothing else matters every five years. And, and, and in those in, interim period, as you're sort of trying to set the agenda and pick the next leaders and pick your supporters. 
Mm. And Victor, Bill said that this was a big show. Um, so I guess that's the question for outsiders. Whenever the Communist Party has this kind of grand meetings, how much is it a show and the big decisions have already been made behind the scenes? And in which case, what is the point of them? What is the purpose of them? Or, or is there something more important going on, actually? There are a lot of shows that go on uh, in the Chinese government, but this is not one of them. I, I think this, uh, I agree with Bill, that this actually is a very important event. To me, it is kind of once every five years to crystallization and formalization of a lot of informal politics and jockeying behind the scene. At the Party Congress, you will actually get to see who is going to get into the Central Committee, who is going to get into the Politburo and the Politburo Standing Committee. On top of that, the policy, it also has a very important policy significance in that the political work report, which Xi Jinping himself presumably will read out for like three hours straight, that actually is a very important document. It sets the agenda for the next five years. Um, it's a huge laundry list of a lot of different policy agendas. Nonetheless, if it doesn't get mentioned in the political work report, it most likely is going to get neglected, you know, unless some kind of external event forces the, the regime to pay attention to it. So it is a very important document. So it is the formalization of a lot of jockeying. Uh, and, um, you know, we're going to talk about all the people who may or may not get into the Politburo, et cetera. Victor is absolutely right. And, and the, the political work report really does set out the roadmap in many ways for the next five years and longer, potentially. The other thing, though, to your question is, is it's pretty much all set by the time they announce the dates for the party congress. Mm. Right. They're not going to show up and then really, I think, debate a lot of these issues that there will have been the work report should be basically done. The, the personnel selection should be done. They would I think they usually don't seem to announce the dates for the party Congress. This time they announced it, I believe, at the end of August until they have everything locked down. Mm-hmm. And and Victor, just now you mentioned the term Central Committee, Politburo Standing Committee. So am I right in thinking the Central Committee is a few hundred people strong and then the Politburo is chosen from that and the Politburo Standing Committee is the seven people within that. So, so there's a kind of hierarchy going on. And that's what we mean when we talk about these terms, that they're the kind of the top levels of the party. Yeah. So, you know, as Bill mentioned, kind of 2,000, 2,200 people will show up in Beijing uh, in the middle of October they will elect, so they, there's actually a voting procedure whereby they elect the central committee, which is roughly 200 full members and 150 alternate members. Alternate members will not have voting power in the subsequent five years, but they can attend all the plenums. And if someone in the central committee gets removed or, or die, then a couple of them can move up into the central committee. And then the central committee, in turn, will elect the Politburo and the Politburo Standing Committee, as well as to re-elect Xi Jinping, presumably, uh, for this uh, party secretary general position. So let's talk about Xi Jinping then, because, you know, this has been widely seen as the moment that he would have stepped down had he been following convention previously. But I think few people really expect him to. And, and to understand that continuation of power and what form it might take, can we first explain the titles that he holds, Bill? Because he is both the president of China and the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. So what do these respective titles mean? Because I think we on, on the outside often only talk about him as the president of China. Well, there's also another title that's very important, which is he's the chairman of the Central Military Commission of both the party, which matters more, and the state. But, you know, the, and the president title really in Chinese is Zhu Xi, it's chairman, but it gets translated in English as 
president, even though it really isn't sort of analogous to say the U.S. president. But from a party perspective, yes, you know the the general secretary position is 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 the key. He is the core of the core of the party. Um, but in terms of power, having the chairmanship of the the CMC, the Central Military Commission, is is also very important. One thing we saw in um, the early 2000s when Hu Jintao became general secretary is for several years, Jiang Zemin, his predecessor, remained as chair of the Central Military Commission and was effectively running sort of a, I don't want to say a shadow government, but was was actually very much overshadowing Hu Jintao and his power. I, there does not seem to be any real doubt that she will get all those titles if he wants them. There is some talk about re-adding back a title of party chairman that Mao Zedong had that might sort of reshuffle things. But whatever comes out of it, I don't think we're going to see any sort of diminution of Xi Jinping's stature or power. Mm-hmm. And, and Victor, the distinction between president and general secretary then, um, is it between state and party? That the president is head of the state and the general secretary is head of the party, essentially. And do they get confirmed at the same time or is it different parts of the party calendar? No, so so only the party positions will be confirmed at the 20th Party Congress. If he wants it, you know, as Bill pointed out, um, he can get an extension as the state chairman at the National People's Congress, which will be next March or so. Well, Bill, you're forgetting a possible new title, 人民的领袖. I, I don't know oh. if that's going to be the people's leader. People's leader. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Volksführer, if you want to say that in German. Yeah, so that's been making the rounds on the press. I wonder if it's going to get formalized. That that would be pretty interesting. What would that mean? Would that just be like calling Deng Xiaoping like paramount leader? Does Does it have any formal role associated with it? That is the question. I mean, you, you can write some things in the party constitution. So there's been, you know, all this talk about revising the party constitution, like the two establishments will be written in. We know that. Will something else be written in? I mean, so, so you know, one potential development, not I don't think for this party Congress, but potentially five years from now, is that she will get this very lofty title, which encompasses control over, you know, party state military. Then he can delegate one of his positions, most likely the secretary general position to another person, a potential successor. So this could be setting the stage for it. But, you know, this is all pure speculation. We don't know if any of that's going to happen. I would guess that most people in the Chinese government would not like to be the designated successor because past designated successors have not met with a very good end. And, and there you can read my book, actually, if you're interested in that, of course. <laughs> it's it's basically putting a large target on your back and your front, right? Um, so that's but really the, interesting. But to the, to, the, to the people's leader that, I don't know if you call it a title or appellation to Xi Jinping, whether or not it brings any formal authority, it certainly brings him, if if you think one of Xi's goals is to be sort of at or above Mao Zedong in the, sort of the pantheon of the Communist Party history, then, you know, Mao Zedong was also a lingxiu, right? And that's a very specific term in Chinese. Hua Guofeng got it for a little while, but then he he didn't really matter after a bit. Um, so this would be another kind of elevation of Xi Jinping, along with, for example, if his if the Xi Jinping thought on um, socialism and Chinese characteristics for new era becomes sort of shortened to just say Xi Jinping thought in the constitution, 
those would both be sort of putting him up at the, the, the Mao Zedong level, which I think he does seem to want from what we can observe. But taking a step back, I want to disaggregate these titles because I want to look at the continuation of power of Xi'an and what that really means when, when, when pundits and when China watchers talk about that. Because Victor, as you say, he doesn't presidents get decided at the National People's Congress each uh, in the spring. So this National Party Congress that's coming up is to confirm him as General Secretary again. And I think there's a lot of confusion because what he abolished in terms of term limits a few years ago was actually the term limits to the president, not to the general secretary. So he could always have stayed on as general secretary. So, Victor, I think, should we, should we talk a little bit about why he wears these three hats at the moment? Like, what were the circumstances that meant that he and his two predecessors were seen as it was a norm for them to wear three hats? Uh, yeah, so this was not always the case in the 1980s. Uh, Deng Xiaoping was the chairman of the Central Military Commission, but did not serve as secretary general, did not serve as state president. Those positions belonged to other people. In the 1980s, there was power sharing between sort of the, the survivors of the Long March generation. And you can read my book about <laughs> all, all about how that came about. But basically, toward the end of the 1980s, uh, especially after the trauma of the Tiananmen Square massacre, a new leadership had to be established. The Long March generation knew that they were getting old, they were going to die in a few years time. So they wanted to entrust whoever the successor is with a lot of formal power so that at least they have a chance of hanging on to power. If you divide up the power among, you know, very weak, very junior officials, they wouldn't even have a chance of staying on to power. So the person they picked, Jiang Zemin, was eventually entrusted with all three positions, secretary general, chairman of the Central Military Commission, as well as state president after a few months time. So, you know, Deng Xiaoping waited like I forgot two or three months before stepping down from the CMC chairman position and handing it over to Jiang Zemin. And after that, that became the norm. The other norm that was established around that time was that Whoever is chosen as the secretary general would only serve full, uh, two full term so that um, even at the 1992 14th Party Congress, it was understood that Hu Jintao would become the next secretary general in 10 years time in 2002, which uh, he became. And so by serving a third full term, Xi Jinping would be violating that norm that was set forth. I mean, granted, it's not a super old norm because it was just established in the early 1990s. But nonetheless, both Jiang Zemin, well, Jiang Zemin sort of stuck to it, you know, because he tried to stay on for a couple of years as CMC chairman. Uh, but Hu Jintao definitely adhered to it and stepped down from all of his positions in 2012. Xi Jinping is not going along with it. In the party constitution, there's no limit to the terms of the Secretary General. And the reason is because the Chinese Communist Party was and still is a revolutionary party. And during a revolution, you can't make a lot of rules for the leadership because anything can happen. The KMT can swoop in and arrest everybody. So, so you have to entrust enormous amount of power in the hands of the Secretary General. They never got around to changing it. Uh, so even after Chairman Mao and everything that he did, the only thing they, they changed was that, oh, well, a cult of personality is not a good thing in the party. That is still mentioned in the party, 
although in the party constitution, although I don't know what you would call what's happening today, which anyone would say it's a cult of personality, but apparently within the Chinese Communist Party, it's not, you know, so. Uh, there are no, there are no Xi Jinping badges yet. I wrote my master's uh, thesis on Mao Zedong badges, so we still don't have the don't have the Xi badges yet. Once we do, then it'll there are be a really lot of bad. memes, though. I, I don't know the modern day equivalent are like you know. Oh, it's not good. Xi da da memes, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, Papa Xi or Uncle Xi. And um, Bill and Victor, as an aside, did you guys see that guy flipping dumplings who really looked like Xi Jinping has been making the rounds on Douyin? <laughs> <laughs> How amazing is that? <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, that's such a digression. There are um, all Bill, these guys who about... look like him, and they all get <laughs> highlighted in social media. Um, Bill, let's talk about this October then. How big a moment is it? Because as Victor has just outlined, it would be overturning this relatively new norm, but still a norm nevertheless that both of his predecessors roughly stuck to. And there's there seemed to be a return of the cult of personality. On the other hand. I guess people always thought this was going to happen ever since the term limit abolishment last uh, in the last few years. So you know, I think um, it, it it is a big deal because it, it if he does stay on, it, it really does represent a in some ways I think a real regression in um, what what a lot of outsiders, a lot of people inside the Communist Party too, I think thought was a a progression towards some sort of institutionalization within the Chinese Communist Party. It. You know, the, the, it's interesting when you read sort of the, the various bits that are, you know, stuff she's saying, the, the historical resolution um, that was passed last, uh, last fall, a lot of the propaganda and the run up to the party Congress. You know, the argument really is being made that China, that they're in this very special moment. They're, they're, as clo- they're as closer to this, this national rejuvenation they've ever been, and they need sort of a, a strong leader to continue, right? And of course, that, you know, this is a, sort of the two establishes plays into that, this idea that, that the strong leader, the continuity, they need Xi Jinping, right? So they're very much laying the groundwork for Xi to be basically the, the person running the show for as long as he wants. What's going to be interesting as we get out of the party Congress in October and we see who the new leadership is and specifically who's on the standing committee and, and what the size is, because it's seven but it used to be nine. It has been five, I believe, at some point. So, and again, it's not fixed in any rules. It, it could change. Is to, to your point, Victor, like with, with where Hu Jintao was effectively designated the successor in, 19, in 1992 for 2002 for 10 years in the future, will we see anybody who shows up in the leadership lineup in October who looks like their potential successor? And is that at least 10 years out, right? Because Normally, we would be at a point where we would have had at least one or two terms of somebody who could credibly replace or succeed Xi Jinping, say, in 2027. We're basically at zero. So, so, so it's potentially then, at a minimum, we're saying, okay, 10 more years at a minimum, which means she would be 79, which seems old. But to be honest, Joe Biden is 79 today, right? So, so from a sort of a perspective of a world leader she at 79, I mean, there's no reason he can't keep going sort of physically and mentally. And in some ways, I think the Chinese leaders seem to age better than, than the Western leaders. Well, I mean, they have, they have better care, I think. But in all seriousness, we, we're going to there be lots of things that we're going to have to pick through coming out of the 20th Party Congress, both from what's in the, the, the report. Um, but then also really, it's not just like who's premier, it's are there any credible successors even in the lineup now? And if they're not, then we're looking, I think you can really 
really credibly push out the timeline for Xi Jinping to remain in power. Right, because because 15 years ago at this point, we had already seen Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang, who at right. that point had a realistic stab at the top leadership, right. already coming out through Hu Jintao's time. So, Victor, well, let, let's talk about that then. Who, who do you think are going to be forming uh, the standing committee, the Politburo standing committee come this October? And what, what does that say about power and succession? Two people almost certainly will have to step down. That's Li Zhengshu and Han Zheng, because they're above the age of 67. Uh, so according to the established norm, you know, again, 67, you can stay, 68, you have to retire. Those two so should... seven up, eight down, which is like this kind of yeah, informal right. retirement threshold. Uh, right. That's the at the Politburo and above level. So at the ministerial level is 65. Except if, if, if you're the general secretary. Right, who is right. 69. And, and yes, Secretary General uh, Xi Jinping is 69, but he has no retirement age. You know, again, that's, that's, there's no norm <laughs> for... The most powerful, but, you know, to be fair, there never was a, especially strong norms on age and, and Jiang Zemin flouted it and, and so on and so forth. So basically, I think the two people most likely to join the Politburo Standing Committee are Ding Xiang, And I still actually, I still like Li Qiang. So it's either going to be Li Qiang or Huang Kunming uh, to take the other mm-hmm. seat. Um, despite everything, and we can talk about Li Qiang in Shanghai and so on and so forth. But but Ding Zhexiang is a very interesting figure for what we discussed. So he is a little bit younger. But nonetheless, if Xi Jinping is serving the full five-year term uh, for the next five years, kind of five years from now, he's going to be too old to be a successor. Because according to the 67-68 rule, he can only serve another single term in the Politburo Standing Committee which means that he would be quite a bit older than previous secretary general who stepped into that position. Usually they're in their late 50s as opposed to mid-60s, which will be the case for Ding Zhexiang sort of five years from now. So then the question is, who is going to be the successor? I mean, I really think the the oldest they can be is kind of my age, you know, Qi Lingho, you know, born in the 70s. And in all likelihood, we're looking at I'm someone already who's... too old. <clears throat> yeah, you're. Got we're too old, man. We're you, too Bill. old. Um, we're the newsletter sings so well. <laughs> you don't need that. <laughs> ba Ling Ho, like someone who was born after the 1980s, millennial, uh, who's, who's going to be. So, I mean, we're really looking at some very young people here for potential successor eventually, right? Because, as Bill pointed out, I mean, she is actually just just 69 this year. Which, you know, again, if you compare to Joe Biden and, and these other people, Abe and so on and so forth, yeah, he's got easily another 15 years, if not longer. Bill, I don't want to bring this too much back to Xi Jinping, but I saw a theory that said that he might set an expiry date on himself. He might say, I'll serve one more term and then, you know, I'll hand over whatever it is. Obviously, hearing what you guys are saying about who would want to be a successor in this kind of system. But what do you make of that theory, Bo? Do you think he, well, he so, wants to stay on? So it? very specifically, recently, there's a Chinese venture capital firm that's been circulating um, a theory or a guess, a speculation that Xi Jinping will announce that he's only going to serve one more term as general secretary and Wang Yang will become premier. I, I don't know. You know, I think that we don't know. And quite honestly, um, why would he, if he were to say, I'm only going to serve one more term, then he's already basically said, I'm a lame duck, um, mm-hmm. which would seem to fly in the face of his view of how to gain and and 
uh, increase and consolidate and exercise power. It's possible, right? I think part of that theory comes from this idea that he's made, you know, this the, the belief that, oh, he's made a bunch of mistakes. So therefore there are pressures within the system, especially among some of the retired senior cadres um, who want to sort of clip his wings. And I can see why that would logically be the case. I'm not sure I can see how that functionally would happen. So mm-hmm. I, I don't, Honestly, I, I don't, it's it's certainly possible. I mean, this is a problem. It's become such a darker, blacker box that the Chinese politics have than they even were 10 years ago that we're really all just stuck guessing. And not just us, people in Beijing, people all over the system are stuck guessing. If I could ask Victor a question though, for your two likely candidates for the standing committee, so you don't think Hu Chunhua is going to make it? So there is a scenario if um, Xi Jinping were to force Li Keqiang out of the Politburo Standing Committee, Again, you know, he has no reason to do so. You know, uh, Li Keqiang is only 67. He should be able to stay for another five years. But if there is a move to kind of force him out, then as a kind of a ask, final ask before full retirement, Li Keqiang can ask for Hu Chunhua to get into the Politburo Standing Committee. But I, I mean, if I were Xi, I would do what you propose, which is to get Wang Yang, um, who is can only serve one more term in the Politburo Senate Committee to make him premier so that he can serve as just for five years as the premier and then promote two people from his own faction into the Politburo Standing Committee. That probably is the best move because, you know, for the next five years, if anything goes wrong, you know, he can say, oh, Wang Yang did it. It wasn't my fault. Uh, so always good to have someone like that right. to blame. And then Hu Chunhua can be the next, you know, fall fall guy, so to speak, at the twenty first Party Congress. That that would be then, kind of the best kind of thing to do. And I mean, this all assumes that they stick to this um, alleged age norm. Yes, um, yes. and See, you know, there have it. been people. You know, that one of the I forget the guy's name, but he was um, in the system. You know, he said a couple of years ago um, at a press conference that basically this whole this whole seven seven up. Eight down is like a is like a folk folk tale, um, and you know there, I've certainly been hearing over the last year and a half that that there that there's talk of lowering it to say sixty five. I don't know. I mean, when you look at that, there's there's a logic to that. I think when you look at a lot of things that Xi Jinping has done over the last several years, um, in terms of the various sort of corruption crackdowns, you know, the, both both in the party and the military. There's a generation of officials who rose up in an incredibly corrupt system. Mm. And you could see how, from Xi's perspective, there might be an advantage or a desire to basically lop off a generation and skip. That might be extremely difficult and would anger a lot of people um, and create a lot of enemies. But he has already created a lot of enemies. Mm. I've got so many questions. But to start with Victor, um, you know, we, we've banded around quite a few names. I'm very mindful that a lot of listeners won't know who these people are, because who do you care about in Chinese politics from the outside other than Xi Jinping? Li Keqiang, people might know, is the, is the premier. But can we maybe... I wonder if the best way to talk about who these people are is through, you know, the factions that you've kind of hinted at already. You know, are there people who are associated with the more liberal side, so maybe, for example, Wan Yang and Li Keqiang and Hu Chunhua, and then people who are not... Maybe you can just... Maybe... Could you just overview <laughs> the lay of the land for us as far as we know about this very opaque system? Uh, yeah, I don't know about liberal or not liberal. There is the Youth League faction, so these were officials 
who rose up partly or wholly through the Chinese Communist Youth League network. Uh, they were promoted by Hu Jintao and some even say Song Ping. So Song Ping is this, you know, revolutionary veteran, like 103 years old, still alive. 105. 105, yes, still yeah, alive. They really do look after themselves, don't they? <laughs> and uh, there are even the internet rumors calling for him to come out and sort of save the country, <laughs> you know, and et cetera, which we can talk about. So that network promoted <clears throat> a number of senior officials today, which I would say in, include Wang Yang. I mean, Wang Yang is slightly sort of in the Anhui branch of it who's currently the chair of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference, but nonetheless in the Politburo Standing Committee, and then, as Bill pointed out, one of the candidates to be the next premier of China. We, we know there has to be a new premier already because Li Keqiang himself said that I will step down from the position of premier uh, next year at, in 2023. The other person who's prominent in that faction is Hu Chunhua. So Hu Chunhua was completely in the Youth League network. And then he's currently in the Politburo as a vice premier, uh, also a candidate for the next premier of China. And of course, Li Keqiang, uh, who's currently premier, they they are they tend to be a bit more pro-market. I don't know about liberal, right? Because Wang mm. Yang has been in charge of Xinjiang, actually. And Tibet. And Tibet in the past five years. And yeah. this was a brilliant political move by Xi Jinping because by the regime's definition, it's just not going to be pretty when you're in charge of that. Xinjiang mm. and Tibet. And and he put Wang so Yang could in you, charge. So could you elaborate that on that? Because well, you, well, know, you might be have thought that Beijing would be... I mean, we've seen all the evidence, you know, mass repression. But isn't that, isn't that a feature rather than a bug? So they, they're quite happy for that. Kind oh, yeah, of yeah, yeah. No, I mean, internationally, it's going to be very, right. very ugly uh, and, and will receive a lot and has received uh, rightly. So a lot of international condemnation, sanctions, etc., etc. Wang Yang has been involved in that. He can't, there's no portraying him as the liberal good guy, mm. so to speak, because he's been in charge of Xinjiang and Tibet. It's a brilliant it, political it, move by Xi Jinping. I mean, this is what I've always said. Xi Jinping is a brilliant politician. Mm. Whatever you say, whatever else you say about him. Yeah, so that's, on the other side, you have sort of Xi Jinping people in Xi Jinping's camp. And even there, you have kind of two different tendencies. You have people who worked with him in Fujian, Zhejiang, and Shanghai, and there's a whole bunch of officials like that, you know, Chen Minar, the party secretary of Chongqing, uh, Ding Xuxiang, that I think is going to get in the Politburo Standing Committee, worked with him in Shanghai, currently his uh, personal secretary, the head of the Central Administrative Office. Huang Kunming uh, worked with him in, in Zhejiang province. Chen Xi, actually his classmate at, at Tsinghua University, so, so did not work with him. And then Li Chang. So we talked about Li Chang, the secretary of Shanghai. The other tendency in his faction are people who did not work with him, but are from northwestern China. And as you know, his family is from northwestern China, from Shanxi province. During the revolutionary period, that part of China had its own faction, the, the Xibei, the northwest revolutionary base area. The descendants and the, the former private secretaries of a lot of these elders from that faction are today some senior officials. So Li Xi, so I find Li Xi to be a very, uh, currently the secretary of Guangdong province, the head of the Guangdong province. 
very interesting guy. He was the personal secretary of a guy who was friends with Xi Zhongxin, with Xi Jinping's、mm. father. But nonetheless, never worked closely with Xi Jinping himself. And today, actually, numerically speaking, he has the largest faction. So I, I do these kind of calculations of like who's in whose faction. Numerically, Xi Jinping today does not have the largest faction. It's actually Li Xi has the largest faction. Nonetheless, of course, publicly speaking,、uh, Li Xi swears his allegiance to Xi Jinping over and over again. Privately, I don't know what he does to assure Xi of his loyalty, but it must be something significant because he's put in charge of Guangdong, which of course is one of the most important provinces,、uh, especially economically speaking, in China.、Uh, so that's broadly speaking, you have these two big camps right now, and then you have a lot of people who are belong to much smaller factions. Some of them are getting promoted. We'll see if anyone. In that vein, gets promoted into the Politburo. I, I think in the Politburo Standing Committee, almost no chance. I mean, you have to either belong to the Youth League or Xi Jinping's camp to have、mm-hmm. a chance in the Politburo Standing Committee. But、right. but hasn't the Youth League? I mean, she seems like he very systematically tried to kneecap the Youth League grouping. I mean, both you know you had the downfall of someone like Lin Jihua, who was basically Hu Jintao's like chief of staff. You know, who ended up. He's in jail for life for corruption.、Um, his his kid died in a Ferrari crash with two naked women、um, in Beijing in 2012. I mean, just goes on and on, right? But but I mean, after that, that sort of seemed to have opened the door to a real crackdown on bits of the youth league faction network. You know, the youth league had a university. I believe I don't know if it was in Jiangsu where it was, but、uh, Xi Jinping they changed the name, and not only they changed the name. You know, lots of Chinese institutions will have a big rock in front. Where they chisel in the the name, they actually、yeah. chiseled off the name, right? So so it was it was sort of a very much like not just we're changing the name, we are just cutting you out, right? And so I, I do wonder like like how many people who were in that youth league faction still think there is a protector or a patron in the system, or if many of them have decided basically. Whether you want to use the term like Joan, like like you basically go to the other side, or you just basically say, okay, I, there is not a lot of point. You know, you saw what happened with Sun Zhongtai, right? Sun Zhongtai, who was also considered the leading light of the next generation of the Youth League, who's now in jail for life, and so it, it is a little bit muddier than I think it was at the sort of in the Hu era. Victor, no, no,、uh, I agree with that, and and you do see. So if you look at the statistics. Uh, people in the youth league faction have been discriminated against when it comes to promotion. The classic case of that is this guy Qin Yizhi. Politically、Yizhi. incorrect. Politically <laughs> incorrect in the wrong line. Qin Yizhi. So Qin Yizhi was the head of the youth league actually. So which is a ministerial level position, very promising.、Uh, and then he did actually go serve as vice secretary or governor of some province. And now I think he's in charge of like the Writers Association of China or something like that. So, so he's not he has not been purged, you know. So I mean, well, first of all, all these guys in the youth league they've had to be very careful when it comes to corruption,、mm-hmm. just absolutely sticking to the line, doing everything by the book because they know if they deviate at all, they're going to get in big trouble. But you do see, actually, some of Wang Yang's people are okay. You know,、uh, they're they're not kind of. We'll see how many of them get into the central committee. But there are many provincial level people still who used to work with Wang Yang and who used to work with Hu Chunhua. 
So we'll, we'll see how much power these two officials are able to exercise to get some of their followers into the, the central committee. I think that will be a big tell in terms of how much Xi Jinping has completely consolidated power. We know he's consolidated power to a large extent, obviously, but whether he is like, you know, the only person who can promote anybody in the system, that remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Victor, so then these factions that you're talking about, are they based more on patronage and networks rather than policies, rather than anything they believe in? Uh, yeah, exactly. So, well, so the way that policy plays a role is, of course, you know, you, you look at Xi Jinping, if he prefers a certain policy like zero COVID, then people in his faction will carry it out no matter what. People who are not in his faction also will carry it out no matter what. But behind the scene, they might be willing to, at least I'm, I'm hoping for, for the sake of China, that they're, they're willing to present some information to Xi Jinping saying that, look, this is not working. And we, we do have some evidence of that. So we have seen some turns mm-hmm. in policies. Like we talk about wolf diplomacy. That has changed a little bit. At least. I, I think, I don't know if Bill agrees with that. I mean, you know, Qin Gang is going around shaking hands and holding The ambassador to America. Uh, yeah. So on and so forth. The other thing that has changed is the, the housing deleveraging, which was a big policy two years ago. Obviously, now they, they have to turn. Uh, the housing market is collapsing. So, so it's being changed very rapidly. Uh, so there's still some ability to change course, which is good, I guess. Well, Bill, Bill, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Like how much resistance does he have in the party? How much of the policy can be laid at his feet? And how much is he is he kind of controlling and battling off uh, competitors all the time? I mean, what, what do you think? So, you know, we don't know. We can observe outcomes. You know, I think that if you look at, like, for example, Victor just mentioned the the, the sort of the, the shifting in the real estate policy. I don't look at that as sort of the, you know, quote unquote reformers, whatever that means these days are are winning as opposed to, holy cow, this is collapsing. So we need to do something right. A much more of a sort of an ability mm-hmm. to make some sort of pragmatic shifts to deal with reality. In terms of, you know, I think you need to look at a couple, uh, several threads that have she has, I think, executed quite brilliantly. To, to Victor's earlier point about how she's a brilliant politician, you know, you get a lot of people who say he's not very bright. He has a, you know, he didn't, you know, he, he graduated, he didn't graduate from middle school, blah, blah, blah. You know, he grew up in the Cultural Revolution. Education was disrupted. And a lot of it was, you know, the works of Mao, not sort of your, your what you consider to be sort of a worldly sophisticated mm-hmm. um, educational background. But he's been absolutely brilliant and ruthless at, at, out basically outplaying everybody in the system to get where he is. And he's done that with a few, a few ways. One, I think if you look at the corruption crackdown, um, which, you know, he really kicked off almost immediately after becoming general secretary in 2012, obviously had support from other people in the system, you know, look like retired leaders who said, yes, you can move forward on certain things. Does look like he went much further. Um, He's also used the body that investigates corruption in the party, the, the, Central Disciplinary Inspection Commission. People say it's the corruption investigator. It's also really the ideological enforcer. So he's used Mm -hmm. that body, which is effectively like the party's secret police in some ways, to really enforce a sort of an ideological shift and, and push through the things around ideology that strengthen his political foundation. 
you know, look at what he's done in the um, security services where, you know, last week we had several, I think five people, um, including a vice minister of public security and a former minister of justice who were sentenced to um, several were sentenced to life with no possibility of parole. You know, he has executed a um, ongoing purge of the security services system. You know, one, it's true. They're incredibly corrupt and you could you could do all sorts of stuff um, if you knew the right person had some money. Two, though, it is very important for him to clear out anybody who remains from other factions or previous leaders who could potentially threaten she or interrupt his, his plans. Um, three, in the case of security services, you know, the things like one of the things that seems to be going around is that the, the vice minister who was sentenced last week um, was also wiretapping senior leaders, including Xi, um, which is one of the big, big taboos in um, God, that is a in bold government. move. Happened under, but it happened under Mao. Again, this is part of the, this is, this is history is repeating, so who, which Victor could give us a lecture on. But so my point is, he, and then in the military, he's done the same where he's gone through um, and really, I think it really kicked off in 2014 with this meeting in Gutian, which was basically a rehash of a big meeting Mao Zedong held, where he went in and that was his move to take control of the military. And so he has been very systematic and effective at rooting out any potential competitors or challengers in the main, in the, in the security services, into the military, the sources of hard power and putting in all his own people, mostly all his own guys. And so that I think also when it go, when you go back to this discussion about factions, you know, you look at like the youth league people, well, the youth league people, who do they have in the security services and military? Who's going to be willing to step up and challenge she when the real, when the, when the real sources of power on the system can basically disappear you. But but who would have directed a wiretapping of C? Sorry to go back to that point, but that does seem extraordinary. Like, does that show that there's more opposition to him in the party than we see on the outside? That is a great question. Um, and I don't, I mean, Victor, do you have an opinion? I mean, I think that... No, um, no. Uh, I, I will speak historically. So the person who did this for Mao uh, was Yang Shangkun. So Yang Shangkun was the head of Zhongban, of the Central Administrative Office. And he wiretapped Mao because he needed to know everything that Mao said. Because, of course, when you are the dictator of a country, everything you say become law. So mm-hmm. he wanted to make sure that he himself did not deviate from Chairman Mao. At least that's what he says <laughs> in his own defense. Like, it's like, I don't want to violate your dictate because... And so in order to do that, I know I need to literally know everything that you dictate out loud because your dictates are dictates. So so that's why he recorded everything. And and I actually think Mao at some point did give his permissions, like, sure, just go ahead and record everything. I said, I don't really care. But later <laughs> on, that was brought back as evidence, like, oh, how dare you record me? This is counter-revolutionary, right. etc. And Yang Shangkun spent, you know, years in jail. Before he then he was appointed to run the military, actually, during the Deng period. So it's very interesting history. Today, yeah. Is this Sun Li Jun who was doing this or, or Fu Zhenghua? That's the, that's the word. And then like one of the guys, the Liu Xinyun, who was sentenced last week too, was actually in charge of like the, I forget the exact term, like the technical bureau at the Ministry of Public Security when it was happening. And then he went and moved out to Shenxi. Um, but like classically, there's, you know, there's the official story of what these guys did. And then there's like the backstory that goes mm-hmm. around that people talk about, well, this is what they really did. And we're not, we don't know, but it, the speculation is always pretty fascinating. And what about the generation that are skipped over by C's continuation in power then? I mean, Victor, are we not expecting ambitious politicians who may otherwise have come to power to be dangerous for Xi Jinping? 
past. Well, you know, many of these people have been promoted into the Politburo already. So, you know, where there is a, quite a bit of power already. I mean, you know, it's a very pyramidal mm -hmm. system. Uh, so people like Hu Chunhua, Ding Zhexiang, Chen Minar. So Chen Minar also slightly younger, born, I think, 62, 63. These are officials who, you know, definitely would have had a chance to get into the Politburo Standing Committee and potentially even serving as the Secretary General. But because of uh, Xi Jinping staying, because of the lack of generational turnover in general, many of these people are going to stay in the Politburo. Which, which I would say is not such a terrible outcome. And you begin to see this kind of happening in the late Soviet period where, you know, these a lot of these people, they're in the Politburo. They just come to run the policy area that they're in charge of as a fiefdom, you know, and then they, they you know, obviously engage in corruption. Today, is there corruption? I think it's a lot less visible, but of course it still happens. Of course there is. Of course, of there, course is. there is. You know, all these companies are listing, you know, why do you think there are like five stock markets in China? It, it's like all these political forces <laughs> behind the scenes trying to get their own startup listed so they can make money, basically. Bill knows a lot more about that. Bill can tell us all about how, how that all works. Well, Bill, I found your newsletter, I mean, I always find it valuable. I found it particularly valuable in following the semiconductor industries crackdown because, you know, that's one of the key industries that the government has been directing from the center, has been billions of dollars poured into it and a lot of anti-graft measures going on in there. Yeah, so a couple of things that I've heard, and again, take these as, as sort of grapevine, but from people who are usually pretty reliable is is that, there, you know, part of it, I think, has been reported. There was a review of this whole semiconductor, the big fund over the summer, and Liu He, the current vice premier, was running the review. And the the realization came out that they were not nearly as advanced as they had been led to believe in terms of, because it's all about breaking through the um, various uh, technology bottlenecks that the U.S. Mm -hmm. effectively the U.S. controls and sanctions or can sanction China over. Um, and so that led to, there had been an auto ongoing to, um, that led to this, this spate of publicized arrests. I'm hearing that there are lots more people who are under investigation, people in the industry, academics. And, you know, Xi Jinping, they talked about it, I think at a recent, I forget it was a policy meeting or a study session, where it talked about sort of a new, setting up a new system, a national system for sort of big scientific achievements. I think what you're going to see, and this goes back to the sort of, will they move towards more reform or not? I think you're going to see on the semiconductors um, more of an approach to like the space program, where they're going to actually put somebody with potentially experience in the space department, maybe for the military, in charge of this national level effort to make mm -hmm. breakthroughs in core semiconductor technologies. But that is one where there was just too much money. The, there was It's a big priority. So here's checks for hundreds of billions of renminbi. The people running the funds are underpaid compared to the people making who have companies that are getting invested in. And it's really easy to set up companies with relatives and friends and funnel some of the money through and get a percentage. It's still too easy and too tempting. Mm -hmm. Well, I also want to talk about policy because we've talked about zero COVID in this conversation already. The National Party Congress has also a chance to review policy and set direction for the next five years. So do you think we can see a loosening of, say, zero COVID or a return to more economy-focused policies? 
I don't see any huge turn. There, there will be some modification, uh, but not with COVID. I mean, you know, the success of zero COVID was written in the resolution on history in late 2021. It is a huge victory of the Chinese Communist Party and of Xi Jinping himself. So that policy cannot change. It can be modified. Uh, it can be made into a bit more flexible. But I think that's going to happen sort of at the state council level. It's really not going to be... Uh, I think officially, the political work report will still say that zero COVID is the correct policy in general. We must continue to pursue it, et cetera, et cetera. Where I think there could be some more significant changes is a focus on economic growth. And so economic growth really is not doing very well in China now. Consumption is very weak. You know, yet again, you're seeing more Chinese economists talking about like, you know, cons consumption is very weak in China. We have to boost it in these various ways. There have been some measures rolled out, but just drips and drops, nothing that will make any significant difference. Um, mm -hmm. So hopefully something more meaningful is going to get rolled out with regards to hukou. And then giving, I mean, I am hopeful, although I keep on hoping it never comes to pass. I'm hopeful that for migrant workers, you know, remember China still has like two, three hundred million migrant workers who basically live in the cities, but they're they're not entitled second to social class services. Citizens. They're, they're second class citizens. And they're second class citizens. And that's where the central government needs to spend an enormous amount of money to boost the welfare and social services for those people. And ironically, that's something that the, the Communist Party has refused to do for decades and decades. I mean, to, yeah. to all mm -hmm. your fans out there who, who love you know, the party and communism, I wish the party would behave <laughs> more like a communist party. I think that would be wonderful, but it hasn't done I would that. be intrigued to know how many listeners are actually fans of the party well, and of communism. Well, <laughs> along, uh, Victor, can I jump in? What I was going to say is along, that, along Victor's point, you know, when you look back at the announcement from the, I think it was the August Politburo meeting about the dates for the for the Party Congress, and then sort of the broadly speaking, what's going to be in it. Um, one was a, a revision of the Constitution. They don't say what. Two other points of note, though, were one was they specifically say that they're going to talk about common prosperity, mm -hmm. right? Which is this term that has been around in the party for a very long time, which came back sort of with a vengeance last year or two years ago, um, and has since freaked out a lot of investors, both foreign and domestic in China. And we don't really know exactly what that means. There's a pilot underway in Zhejiang province, but it, it is not. Um, there have been some hope earlier this year, I think among investors at least, that maybe they had de-emphasized it because of all the, the economic growth problems. Um, the fact that it's listed in the announcement of the party Congress as it's one of the key themes is probably means that it, it's going to come back in a big way. It may include some of the stuff Victor's talking about, which is actual um, mm. acting a little more communist in terms of things like the the Hukou and migrant state. workers. Yeah. Um, we don't know, but that is, I think, going to be one of the you know one of the, the a lot of the focus has been oh well, who's up who's down you know is she going to get these titles? But there is going to be I think some real substance coming out of that. The other thing that's not economic related but is very much I think matters for the politics of international relations is that announcement of the party Congress very specifically mentioned stuff around history. Mm. And history is one of the big thrusts of Xi Jinping in terms of re of, of, of re of controlling history and reshaping history about China and what happened to China and China's place in the world. And that depending how it goes could cause a lot of frictions internationally and also could lead to some, I think 
potential stress inside China on a political perspective. Well, Bill, Bill, that reminds me of something I read in your newsletter about this kind of um, state-sanctioned revisiting of the Ming Dynasty and whether or not it was a good thing that during that time, you know, China closed up to the world and actually saying, yeah, actually, unlike received wisdom, it was a good thing for China to have closed a bit more. That was, a, it was an essay that came out over the summer, basically a very revisionist essay saying that the, the that sort of China's closed approach to the world in imperial in the last two dynasties was actually not bad. And, and the sort of the top level is it like had its advantages, right? And it was written by a journal that's affiliated with a new institute that was set up, I think in 2019 under the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences by somebody who was known to have a sort of had a relationship with Xi Jinping, seen as quite leftist. And it freaked a lot of people out inside China because it was a sort of in the in the context of what's going on with, with dynamic zero COVID and the way China has closed itself off, this was seen as an intellectual historical justification for a mm-hmm. much a much more closed off isolationist policy that could also be sort of married to this idea that the you know the, the, the leadership started pushing this idea of a dual circulation strategy, which was really sort of focus more on the domestic market. Yes, we'll use the foreigners for capital and stuff we need, but we're going to, you know, we're going to screen out a lot more stuff in terms of culture and ideas. And that very much is is one of the, you know, the, some of the key themes of the Xi era so far. And so this piece, again, freaked out a lot of people. You've had some academics sort of come out and say, oh, this is a bad idea. We're sort of left wondering. Now, when this institute was founded in two, or was set, established in 2019, Xi Jinping wrote a letter to it commending it, you know, congratulating it for its for its its creation, which again leads people to think, well, is this sort of she really believes this or is this some sort of balancing among like leftist conservative ideas and not so much conservative before the party congress? We don't know, but it's mm-hmm. not a it's not an encouraging sign. And and again, the the, the way when I say that, I'm not talking about like for foreign reserves. I'm talking about you people inside China who were very freaked out by this. Mm-hmm. Because of what it could potentially pretend. Yeah, I, I have to agree. From but you know you have to look at things from the party's perspective. You know what happened in the past two and a half years since COVID, in terms of China's exchanges with the rest of the world, has been perfectly fine. Yeah. Because trade continue. In fact, China ran the largest trade surplus it had ever ran. In 2020 and 2021, this year, maybe a little bit smaller, but mainly because, you know, Europe consumption in, in Europe has sort of fallen off. At the same time, there is a very high barrier to entry for foreigners going to China. No big deal. They're all yeah. spies anyway. Mm. There is a very high barrier for Chinese people to leave China because of zero COVID. Also not a big deal because, you know, these people are just going to go and buy expensive purses in France. We don't need that, right? And and see how the rest of the world is reopened. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, Victor, and, I, I, you're right. No, you're, it's a feature, not a bug. Yeah. Well, I think, Victor, that's particularly interesting because it's so easy to think C has completely screwed this one up. You know, look at zero COVID. Look at the fact that China is still living under repeated lockdowns. Look at the economy. Look at the choking off your home of your homegrown Silicon Valley look at the closing of the Chinese mind when it comes to kind of psychologically how you think about foreigners and international community. But Victor, you're pointing out actually that people in the party and people from the party's perspective actually think that he's done okay, if not actively good. 
Well, look, uh, um, some of the tragedies that unfolded in Shanghai, I'm, I'm sure yeah. privately, even party insiders thought that that was not ideal. But I think for them, it was more of a kind of a logistics issues than the, than the problem with the mm. overall yeah. policy of zero COVID. I think there is still, even not just in the party, but at the popular level, there still is a lot of support for zero COVID, actually. And, and you have to remember, you know, all these videos that you see, like people getting angry, they're fighting with the police and so on and so forth. Those are very few cases in the midst of like an enormous scale of rolling lockdowns. Yeah. I mean, there are dozens and dozens of cities at any given time which are under lockdown in China. Roy Li, you know, on the borders of Burma has mm. been in lockdown continuously for, you know, two years, you know, whatever it it's is. It's a disaster. You don't see a big riot there. And in fact, in really, mm. I mean, I think Bloomberg or somebody did a really uh, excellent series of pieces on it recently. Uh, it's super draconian. I mean, people have been in basically incarcerated in their homes continuously for years. And so I think this policy can continue. I, I think it's terrible for China's economy, actually, because and also for the population. Right. I mean, if you want the population to grow, there has to be family formation. If people can't leave their apartments, how can you possibly have family formation? I mean, you can't. And you're also breaking up some families, presumably. <laughs> yeah, breaking up families. Well, okay, some families are having more babies, whatever. But uh, but at least on the margin, you can't have yeah. a family formation when if this continues. So there are there are high high price to be paid in the medium term, but in the short term, I I think a lot of people in the party think that's fine. Mm -hmm. Any final words? Otherwise, I'm thinking I'm going to wrap up there. I've taken up so much of your time already. Read Victor's book. It's great. <laughs> Brilliant. Victor's book. Victor, can you <laughs> plug your book for us? Yes. My book is called Coalitions of the Week, Elite Politics in China from Mao's Stratagem to the Rise of Xi. You can get it on Amazon or if you order from the Cambridge University Press website, I think the discount code is SHIH2022. Uh, that should give you a 20% discount. So SHE2022. Lovely. Thank you so much, both. Thank you, Bill, and thank you, Victor. Thank you. Always great to be on. I love your podcast. Thank you. And if you like what we do here, you might be interested in the Chinese Whispers newsletter that I will be launching in the near future. Sign up for free at spectator.co.uk forward slash whispers and you'll be getting regular updates from me on the most interesting political and cultural news from China, as well as, of course, a smattering of history. That's spectator.co.uk forward slash whispers.